Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Okay, I think we'll get started because I'm sure there are going to be a lot of questions for our speaker tonight, so I want to give us the full amount of time. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Jan Barris, Vice President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. And uh, I was going to say in my introduction that, first of all, I'm delighted to welcome all of you here, but there were two people I was particularly happy to welcome. But I don't see one of them here. <laughs> so, uh, I'll welcome him anyway, and when he gets back, you can tell him. Uh, Ambassador, um, I almost said Ambassador Stephen. <laughs> Ambassador Nick Platt and Michael Chin from Columbia University, because the two of them were also present six years ago when we did a book event for Steve's book, Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom, which was his wonderful story. Um, a very compelling history of the Taiping Rebellion. And I use that word compelling advisedly. Uh, a lot of, in the hands of a lot of historians, history becomes sort of a procession and litany of names and dates and battles and treaties and whatever. But that's certainly not the case for Steve. As my colleague Margot Landman, here, uh, mentioned to our staff yesterday, Steve's books are page turners. And that's because, uh, for me, I think it's because when he writes, he uses stories or portraits of people to convey his overall larger story. And these really interesting people that he talks about are written about in the, the way he presents them are done in such beautiful sort of written portraits of people that they become alive on the page and therefore the history becomes alive as well. So um, Steve is not just a terrific writer, as those of you who I hope will go and buy this book this evening and then the other two books that he's written, which are also quite wonderful, which are mentioned in the material we have on you, which gives a little bit of his background. Um, we, we want you, or sorry, he's going to be talking to us tonight about the history, uh, but we also hope that he will bring it a little bit up to date. Um, we had, um, what I started to say before is that Steve's not just a terrific writer, he's also a terrific speaker. And I heard rave reviews from an audience that he spoke to a couple months ago about how he did not just tell the history, but how he made it very relevant for what's going on today. So we're hoping that he will do the same for us. And with that, I turn you over to Steve. Thank you. Should I stand or? Up to you. Is it okay? Is it okay if I'm sitting down? Cool. All right. Thank you all for coming. And can you hear me? Is it bouncing off the walls and whatnot. All right, um, well, I'm going to be, I'll be talking in general about the book, and I'll read a few passages from it to give you a sense of it. I, a, a few of you may have seen it. The assumption is that you don't know anything about the book coming in here. 
Um, just for a baseline, though, um, how many of you know about the opium war? How many of you could really explain the opium war? <laughs> how many of you would like me to encapsulate it in a, in a nutshell? All right. Um, in a nutshell, the opium war, um, this absurdly immoral war, um, it was a war 1839 to 1842. Um, the um, British drug dealers have been carrying opium from India for several years. Finally, a Qing official cracked down on them. Um, Britain essentially took this as a cause to make war on China, um, forcing open treaties, et cetera, et cetera, uh, forcing open ports, uh, forcing a treaty on China. Um, it was far more complex than that. And the government in Great Britain never would have admitted that this actually had to do with opium. That was what the critics said, and I'll come back to that later. Um, one of the reasons why that war is so important, it wasn't such a big war at the time. Um, and in the annals of Qing military history, it's extremely minor. It's written up as a, basically a border skirmish for a foreign incident. Um, it wasn't until the 20th century that for China it became the Opium War. Um, and it became really the foundation of the nationalist mythology in China. That it's the moment when China's weakness was laid bare before the world, uh, the moment when China was dragged kicking and screaming into the modern world of imperialism and something that every government since then has been making up for, beginning with Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists, then the communists, and now Xi Jinping, who we can come back to um, later on, who trots this out with some regularity in his speeches, um, talking about the 170-year struggle, now the 175-year struggle of the Chinese people um, to rise up and rebuild themselves after this humiliation of the opium war. Um, Xi Jinping incidentally thinks that they will make up for it within our lifetimes by about 2050. Um, China should have made up for it and we will see what we have then. Anyhow, so that's the Opium War. Um, but I want to start here before the Opium War. And we're going to start in the spring of 1817, so 201 years ago. Um, and we are on the island of St. Helena where Napoleon, who has recently been defeated and is now in exile, um, has a conversation about China with his Irish doctor, Barry O'Meara, who has come with him into exile. Um, the occasion of their conversation on this spring day um, is that they're waiting for the arrival of a British ambassador, Lord Amherst, who was Britain's second attempt to send an ambassador to Beijing. Um, you may have heard of the McCartney mission of 1793, which failed completely. Lord Amherst in 1817 failed even worse <coughs> than McCartney had. Um, he didn't even have an audience in the end. Um, the whole thing went so badly that the Qing Emperor wrote a letter to the King of England suggesting that Great Britain not send any more diplomats to China ever again. It might just be better off that way. Um, in any case, um, so Napoleon is talking about this with his doctor. And the reason why this embassy failed, as far as they understand, um, is because Amherst refused to kowtow. Have you heard of the, the, the kowtow? Again, this is, it's part of the English language now. Um, it denoted a specific ceremony of kneeling, nine deep kneeling bows down to the ground. It was required of anyone who had an audience with the emperor of China, regardless of whether they were Chinese or a foreigner. Um, everyone had to do this. And allegedly, Amherst had refused to kowtow, and so his embassy fell apart, um, and he was sent packing. Um, Napoleon's opinion was that this was ridiculous. And he said, it's just simply a matter of respecting a foreign court. 
that Napoleon said, if I had sent an ambassador to China, of course I would have told them to kowtow. That's what you do in order to show respect. Um, and as he saw it, that Amherst had squandered the friendship of China, likely to the detriment of British trade, and that was the end of the story. Now, a little wider background here. China in 1817 was immensely powerful, but it had declined from the power that it had in the 18th century when it was seen as just impossibly unified um, by Westerners. Uh, by 1817, cracks were beginning to show. It was becoming more apparent that there were problems within the Qing Empire. And it was on this grounds that Barry O'Meara, Napoleon's doctor, responded when Napoleon was complaining about Amherst, that it didn't matter if Amherst had lost the friendship of the Chinese because the British really didn't need China's friendship anyhow. All they needed to do was send in the Royal Navy and they could take what they wanted. And what I want to read here is Napoleon's response. So talking to his doctor, Napoleon says, it would be the worst thing you have done for a number of years to go to war with an immense empire like China. You would doubtless at first succeed, but you, could teach, you would teach them their own strength. They would be compelled to adopt measures to defend themselves against you. And essentially, Britain could win a battle, they could win a war, but China would simply begin to rearm itself. They would say, we must try to make ourselves equal to this nation. Why should we suffer a people so far away to do as they please to us? We must build ships, we must put guns into them, we must render ourselves equal to them. They would get artificers and shipbuilders from France and America and even from London. They would build a fleet, he said, and in the course of time they would defeat you. So here we are 200 years later, and China has built that fleet. People's Liberation Army lays claim to the entire South China Sea. They are allegedly trying to build bases nearly to the doorstep of Australia. And the political body behind this rising military power is founded on a nationalism which is founded on the memory of the Opium War and everything that it represents about the bullying of China in the past. So in a certain sense, the nationalism of China today is a monster of our own, our own creation, us being the West very broadly conceived um, for things like the Opium War. Um, this war has become especially central under Xi Jinping. He talked about it more than previous presidents of China. And again, this is the beginning of China's great struggle, which is beginning to culminate and which by 2050 will culminate again. And what's the, what does the culmination represent? It, me, it represents China's return to this nostalgic past that existed before the Opium War, that era in the 18th century when China was unified and powerful, when it was envied by the West, when it was respected. This is what Xi Jinping wants. This is what the so-called Chinese dream is about recovering um, and holding on to that humiliation from this war. And the injustice of this war you know, provides much of the fuel for that. Um, perhaps even more potent today, Xi Jinping seems to read the Opium War also as being a watershed moment, marking the point when Chinese first began to admire Western institutions and Western models of strength. And part of putting the Opium War behind it is also a matter of China looking instead to its own past, instead of models of Britain or America. And certainly as Xi Jinping personally sees it, Britain has already declined, America is on the way down, the Western model has failed, 
China should look to its own past. Um, so this doesn't, if, thought, if you think about it that way, this does not bode well for the future. Um, this vision of the war as sort of the bullying of the West, which will later get its comeuppance. Um, but as China becomes stronger and as in its confidence, the, the country comes to resemble more that old dynasty than it does anything in, anything in recent memory, um, we can look for clues and relations between China and the West back then, how things operated, what went well, what went badly. Um, it doesn't predict the future for us, but it, can all, but it can ease some of the fears about the necessity of a clash of civilization. Um, so there are two ways that the Opium War is typically remembered. Um, one is as an inevitable result of a clash of civilizations. The rise of the West and the decline of China was destined to end in war. That particular vision does not bode well for the future of a rising China. In China, this is also largely understood as it being the result of an imperial master plan, that the, as if the, Brit the British had been sharpening their knives all along, waiting for the moment they could finally make war against China and humiliate it. Um, and what I've found in my research is that neither of those is correct, if you look at how this war happened, and if you look at the era preceding it. Um, it was entirely unexpected. It was completely unprecedented. It was all but unthinkable, even to the government ministers who launched it prior to its actual outbreak. And it very nearly did not happen. We tend to view events like this in hindsight as if they were always destined to be the Opium War was very nearly derailed, and I would add that by the logic of its, by the moral logic of its time in Great Britain, it shouldn't have happened. I'll come back to that. Anyhow, so what does this, this old trading world look like? What does this trading world under China's terms look like? Some of you may know about the, um, the old Canton trade, which is the, the first several chapters of this book concentrate on the, up from 1760 up until the Opium War, all British and American trade was restricted to a little compound just outside the city of Guangzhou, um, known then as Canton. Um, the city itself was the third largest in the world at the time, but foreigners were not allowed inside. They had to content themselves in these little buildings. They were called the factory buildings. Um, not our term factory, which is for building things, but a factor was a term for a trader. So the factory buildings were places where tra foreign traders could live and do their business. Um, I just want to give you, a, I'm gonna read here just an, an image of one of these factory buildings to give you a sense of, of, what it, of what the world of the trader, of the foreign trader was like in 1830s Canton. And again, can you hear me in the back? Is this clear enough? Yeah. Okay. In all the compound, it's the British factory that's most striking. Larger than the others, it has its own fenced-in space in front that reaches all the way down to the river bank. And I should say, this is part of an introduction where I'm sort of leading you through. You're in the position of a foreigner, even if you're not yourself a foreigner. <laughs> Standing out in front under the limp Union Jack on this sultry afternoon, you can see the factory's broad columned terrace with a view up and down the river where the merchants of the East India Company can enjoy their tiffin and sometimes catch a bit of a breeze. If you go through the front gate past the vigilant Chinese guard with his rattan cane, entering through the shade of the veranda, you will find upstairs a European world that might make you forget where you are. Along the wide hallways, you will find counting rooms, tea tasting rooms, and parlors. There are well-appointed living apartments, a dining hall with room for more than 100 guests, a billiard room, and a library of 4,000 books. 
Looking around inside the vast chandeliered British dining hall, the portrait of a king on one wall, a former ambassador on another. Drinking your sherry as a bustling crowd of servants prepares to serve a dinner of roast beef and potatoes with gravy. You could be forgiven for imagining you had stumbled into some colonial outpost. <coughs> but this is not India. The British are not in charge here. The Chinese are. These buildings are all of them owned by Chinese merchants who rent them out to the foreign traders so they will have a place to stay and do their business. The armies of servants answer to their Chinese superiors, not those they wait on. They report what goes on with the guests. Watched over at all times, the foreigners feel sometimes like grubby infants, coddled and helpless, attended always by their nurses. They need permission to do just about anything. And as opulent as these surroundings may be, the residents sometimes feel they have volunteered to become prisoners here. And despite the feeling of open space outside, and there's a little plaza out front of this foreign compound, the whole compound is limited in size. It runs for just 300 yards along the waterfront and between the square out front and the factory buildings behind, it's only about 200 yards deep. The longer you are here, the smaller it will feel. Foreigners are not permitted to go into the city itself, and they can only wander through the very nearest part of the suburbs. Other than that, this is their gilded cage. There is nothing else like it in the world. The entire formal trade of Europe and America with China, the largest empire in existence, goes on here in a space of just 12 acres. Less, some like to point out, than the footprint of one of the pyramids of Egypt. And as I add in the introduction here, you may not want to spend too many years of your life here. But as you see it in the early 1830s, Canton hardly seems the kind of place to start a war. So this was a trading order whose rules were determined by China, specifically by the emperor up in Beijing. And one thing I would like to emphasize about that Canton trade is that it worked. Britain got all of its tea from China. Um, they found a ready market for textiles and silver. It was a bustling trade. The foreign traders in the middle of it, while they dreamed of great access to further markets, they were still raking in money hand over fist. And it was well within their interests to follow the rules that were set for them. And I should say here that over the long term, and all the way up to the very outbreak of the Opium War itself, the constant refrain from the British government when British traders got themselves into various little pickles in Canton was, behave yourselves. Periodically, a group of merchants would try to gin up some kind of an excuse to call for a naval fleet to help open up trade. And again, over and over, regardless of party, the governments in Britain would tell them, your job is to obey the laws of the country that you have voluntarily gone to to trade. So I, we can talk about later about how that gets upended. Um, but while it may have been a little frustrating, it was, a, it was a very profitable meeting of civilizations. And over the long term, it worked largely because the points of contact here were merchants, British merchants dealing with Chinese merchants, both incidentally with a monopoly. Up until 1834, the East India Company had a monopoly on the British side. And a handful of Chinese merchant houses, known as the Hong merchants, had a monopoly on the Chinese side. But they developed close relationships, and they got along well. The problems which would crop up, and they'll crop up all over the place in this book, um, the problems crop up generally when issues of national prestige start to interfere. 
when you start to send in diplomats, especially ambassadors always mess things up. Um, anytime, anytime you have somebody like Lord Amherst who's obsessed with Britain's image, he will flounder and flub everything, but inevitably, you know, after he finally gets booted out and heads back to England, um, things return to normal back in Canton and the trade starts humming along again. Um, so it was, a it was a model of international relations based on business through the merchants of Britain and America and China who came together at Canton. Um, and one thing that we tend to forget about this, again, because so much of this gets erased by the memory of the Opium War, perhaps rightly, but not entirely. Um, but one thing we tend to forget is that there were some very, very strong bonds formed um, in this world. And one of the characters that I sort of pursued in this book, really a relationship between two characters, um, was a young American merchant named John Murray Forbes, um, who was about 18 years old when he went over to China. Um, he, was, he came from a trading family in, in Milton, Massachusetts, went to school in Northampton, Massachusetts, where I grew up. Um, I didn't pick him for that. Um, <laughs> But he wound up going over to China in the early 1830s, and he wound up working not just for his family firm, um, but also began working for one of these Hong merchants, um, one who he's known to the, to the Americans and the British as Hokwa, H-O-U-Q-U-A. Um, and he was, the leading, he was the leading Hong merchant. And John Murray Forbes, this young American, went to work for him as his English language secretary. Um, Hokwa could communicate perfectly easily in, in pidgin English, but for formal writing, he relied on, on, on a secretary. Um, and so I want to here to introduce Hokwa, because it's the relationship between this young American and this old uh, merchant. It follows through the course of the book, and it offers, um, I find, a more hopeful image of, uh, of East-West relations at this time, um, sort of a, a brighter side of this. In a commerce driven by personal relationships, there was no individual in the Canton trade more influential than Hokwa. He was in his mid-60s at the time John met him, wizened and frail looking beyond his years, with a long neck, drooping eyes, and a pointed goatee. He struck John as an intellectual man, temperate and sedate. John's brother Robert described him as, quote, a man of remarkable ability who in any community would have been a leader. Hokwa handled all the business of the East India Company factory in Canton, along with other foreign traders he chose to work with. And notably, he was not only adamant about keeping his hands clean of the opium trade, he also demanded the same of his foreign partners. Representing as he did the best of the proper legal trade at Canton, Hokwa was revered by the foreign community for his honesty and business acumen. Teas marked with his imprimatur were considered the best that could be had in the world, and uniquely among his countrymen, he became a household name in England and America. And as I go forward here, just, these are not things that we expect to read, to, to hear said by foreigners about Chinese at this time. Um, the name of Hokwa, as a writer from a later generation put it, was, quote, a symbol of the integrity of the Chinese, a mark of genuineness and excellence that few traders could do without. Due entirely to Hokwa's personal reputation, this writer reflected the honesty of the Chinese has become proverbial, that this, that this merchant was absolutely legendary. Um, Hokwa also happened to be likely the richest man in the world. The Americans in Canton reckoned his net worth to be $26 million in the 1830s, a figure that, for comparison, far outstripped the fortune of John Jacob Astor, the, wealthy, the wealthiest American of the time. 
Okay, so John Murray Forbes winds up going to work for him. He had an older cousin who had worked for him previously and an older brother who drowned, which is why John Murray Forbes came to China. Um, both of them had known Hoqua previously, so there was a family connection here. Um, but going forward, perhaps it was something about John Murray Forbes' youth, coupled with the inherited affection Hoqua carried for his cousin and deceased brother, but John's service to Hoqua soon expanded beyond just maintaining the merchant's letterbook. Hoka came to trust young Forbes intimately, viewing him almost like a son, and believing that Forbes understood his way of thinking better than any other foreigner. He wrote that in a letter. Within the year, he was using Forbes as an agent to invest in shipping ventures of his own. Um, and ultimately, he would start chartering ships full of tea of his own, sending them abroad under John Murray Forbes's name, um, sending them out into other countries to be sold. Um, Hoka gave him a generous 10% commission, and by his own estimate, John Murray Forbes soon had more than half a million dollars of investment property under sale in his own name, underwritten entirely by Hoqua. So here's the beginning of Chinese investment going abroad, um, Hoqua sending his own teas abroad. Um, and as we travel through the book and this relationship matures, eventually John Murray Forbes comes home. He's, gonna be, he's not going to be in China during the Opium War. Um, he came home and began, began investing in railroads um, and would fashion himself as one of the leading antebellum railroad magnates in the United States. And when he came back from China, he had a fortune of about $100,000 that he had made from all of the China trading. Hoqua gave him about half a million dollars to invest in his own name um, in various American investments. So going forward, um, throughout the expansion of his railroad empire, John Murray Forbes continued to invest Hoqua's money in the same ventures where he put his own funds, effectively continuing the partnership they had first established in Canton when he was all of 18 years old, and Hoqua sent his cargoes of tea abroad under the young Forbes' name. Their partnership had always been informal, based on trust and affection rather than contracts, and Forbes kept to its spirit assiduously as he represented Hoqua's interests in the United States. In contrast to the dominant currents of the Canton trade, where the foreigners and their ships all converged on the Middle Kingdom from their far-flung nations, while the merchants of Canton sat fixed at the center and let the world revolve around them, here was evidence that the flow of capital could work just as well in the other direction, that a Chinese merchant could buy into the expanding economy of the United States. By the time John Murray Forbes began returning the funds to Hoqua's heirs in the later part of the century, the Hong merchant's U.S. investments would, read, would represent major holdings in railroad securities that read like a map of the opening of the American Midwest. The Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy Railroad, the Dixon, Peoria, and Hannibal, the Carthage and Burlington, the Illinois Grand Trunk Railway, the American Central. One of the reasons that I bring them and weave them through this book, and I actually, I, I wound up ending the book with them, <laughs> this is a much more hopeful vision of American-Chinese or even British-Chinese relations that existed in this period that under better circumstances might have come to define the period better than this disaster of a war that would take place. And I would say that we choose how we w wish to remember history. And I I'm going to come to the war itself, but if 
China wishes to remember its great stature in trade in the 18th century and the great respect that it had from the world then, as it should remember, we too can remember the great potential that lay in partnerships of that era as well. I don't mean this to be a completely rosy talk, but, um, but something that isn't just completely depressing, because of course the Opium War did happen, and there would be huge ramifications that it happened. Um, but one thing, and this will be sort of the last main thing I talk about here before Q&A, but the one thing that I found quite surprising, I probably shouldn't have, um, but one thing I found very surprising in my research, which became part of the core of the later narrative in this book, um, is that there was a remarkably strong and eloquent opposition to the war at the time in Great Britain. We tend to think of the British, they were the British, they were the imperialists, they go marching on in, guns blazing without a second thought. That isn't exactly what happened with the Opium War. And I wanted to try to revive some of the voices of the people who tried to stand in the way of this happening, the people who saw things in more clear and moral terms at the time. Um, where did I? So page 392. Um, and I should mention that the, that the first voices of criticism really came from the, uh, from the abolitionists in Great Britain. One of the most perverse things about the Opium War, and this was not lost at all on the critics at the time, was that it was launched by the very same British government that had just abolished slavery a few years earlier, in which considered itself a moral exemplar for the, for the world. And how a government that had just abolished slavery could turn around and fight a war on behalf of drug dealers was the paradox at the heart of the war. So I want to read a bit here about the reaction to this when the news of the war hits, hits Britain. As news of the opium seizure and shutdown of trade at Canton reached the British public, followed soon after by rumors of war, the press erupted with alarm. And, as it's, and one reason I'm going to read this directly from here is just how, because they were so eloquent in how they put this, I couldn't paraphrase them better than they said things themselves. Um, as the Leeds Mercury noted in September of 1839, most people in Britain hadn't even known about the Chinese opium trade previously, but now it was emerging as a national crisis. The paper called on the British government to, quote, make the righteous, righteous decision to outlaw the trade and suppress the growth of poppies in India, where most of it was being produced, for the sake not only of the vindication of our national morality, but also the security of our interests and the safety of our commerce. Um, as many people in the manufacturing districts of Great Britain saw it, and they had no interest in the opium trade at all. These were manufacturers of cotton goods and things like that. Um, as many of them in the manufacturing dis districts saw it, opium was antithetical to British trade interests in China, both because the Chinese squandered money on the drug that they would otherwise use to buy manufactured goods from the British, um, but also because smugglers were creating so much trouble for the legitimate traders who were honest in trying to trade in legitimate goods. Um, so although some might consider the British opium merchants respectable in commercial terms, said the Mercury, quote, as regards morality and humanity, they are the pitiless agents of as cruel and detestable a system as was ever contrived by our common adversary to effect the ruin and misery of men. Anti-slavery activists helped lead the public outcry. One of the leading figures in the British abolition movement, an orator named George Thompson, took up the cause of the opium question, as it was called at the time, and went on a speaking campaign in the winter of 1840, giving public lectures to overflow crowds in Leeds, Nottingham, Darlington, York, and other manufacturing centers, rallying working class support um, again to oppose this war. 
and for abolishing Britain's overseas drug trade. The central question, as he told his audiences, was, quote, whether we should go to war in defense of those who gained immense profits by the introduction of smuggled poisons into the Chinese empire, or abandon the idea of this unjust war and trade with the Chinese upon fair and honorable terms. It's one thing for the activists to get involved. The anti-slavery activists, temperance activists, various working class activist groups um, piled on here. Um, but the political establishment also took it on, particularly led by the Conservative Party and its supporting paper, the London Times. So the Times, the po London political paper of record, was especially vicious in its con condemnation of the cabinet's actions. This was a Whig government in power at the time. Um, whatever high-sounding terms the Whig ministers might use to justify their war, it declared on March 23rd, 1840, the war in China was, quote, in fact, nothing less than an attempt by open violence to force upon a foreign country the purchase of a deadly poison prohibited by its laws, unquote. In another editorial, the Times predicted that a war in Canton would cause the utter extinction of the China trade, Britain would lose its only source of tea, and enormous funds would be squandered on an unnecessary foreign campaign that would cost far more than all the opium that had been seized. Going forward, through the winter and spring of 1840, Parliament was inundated with petitions from religious groups, temperance societies, and other public organizations across England and Scotland demanding an end to the opium trade and opposing the war in China. Those two elements, the smuggling trade on the one hand and the war, which the government tried to keep as far apart as possible, logically speaking, um, were closely tied enough together in public minds that by 1840, critics in the press were already calling it the Opium War. This is the term that it would be handed down by. And as a side note here, I should mention that this derogatory name for the war, which stuck, of the Opium War, was not given by the Chinese. It was given by the British. It was given by the Times of London. Um, the, it wasn't until the 20th century that Chinese writers would start calling this the Opium War, the Opium Zanzang. So I'll do the last little bit here. The sole purpose of the war, as those British critics saw it, was to advance the interests of drug dealers. The eclectic review predicted it would, quote, stand out in history as the blackest stain on the character of Britain. No matter how the government ministers might try to paint it as a respectable war, said the spectator, do what they can, gloss over it as they may. The Opium War is the name by which history would hand it down, and they were entirely this all came to a head with a motion in Parliament to end the war by forcing the resignation of the government ministers that had started it. This sparked the largest debate of that year in the House of Commons. It went on for three full nights of debate, um, speeches that went on for hours at a time in some cases, some incredibly impassioned and eloquent speeches. In the end, the motion to stop the war failed by nine votes out of 522 that were cast. So if just five members of the House of Commons had switched their vote, the government in London would have been brought down, the war would have been aborted. We might be finding different lessons to talk about from this particular era. Um, so in conclusion, I'd say that on the one hand, we have to re reckon with the legacy of the Opium War, that it happened, and, the, and what it meant as a watershed for relations between China and the West. But we don't need to imagine that it represents the essential or innate nature of China and the West. 
or that it represents some inevitable clash of civilizations that's destined to repeat itself over and over. And I think it's crucial to remember the people who stood against the current of their times, even if they failed, because they show us, in a certain sense, at, for the British at the time, the better angels of their natures. But those existed at the time, and they will exist in the future. So perhaps hope lies in here for a more cooperative future with a strong China. All right, thank you. I'm actually going into World War II after this. Oh, that's wrong. You guys <laughs> yeah. 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 It, yeah. If you actually want to, yeah, it, 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 I'll be working on World War II, but I, I won't. I won't go on about that later. But I can tell you later about exactly who I'm going to be looking at in World War II. There's a question back here. <clears throat> oh, I appreciate that. So you want to you guys triggered the key trigger for a short time. Identify yourself. Oh, my name's Sean. I'm actually. Uh, Professor, I'm not in history, okay? Mm -hmm. I'm in the law. Actually, I very appreciate that you are talking about, okay, the history and short history about opium war to, uh, until right now. Do you have some research work and to do something the, the very blooming era in China from 1930s to 1940s? And also in the 1820 to 1830s, are still and very booming and economic and development in China in the history. Okay, and you have you been to and Chenzhou and Fujian province? Yeah, that you were seeing a lot, you know, and the trading history and food and very fascinating and at that time. So, how do you and you know and do analysis for this country, you know, and the history? And for opium wars and uh, some inside reason and from China history. For, for instance, the Qin Dynasty and the corruptions, and also the sum of reason and why the people from British and ships come to China, they are fighting with the Qin Dynasty's army, okay? At that time, and some of the history review, the some fishermen welcome this kind of invasion. That's where we are, to my surprise, when reading the history, real history. Thank you for your comments. Yeah, I mean, the, as far as the inside history, so the, I mean, the, the Chinese side of this story is one of the managing, management of decline of an empire coming down from its peak. Um, so the, 
I mean, beginning in chapter two, we have the White Lotus Rebellion okay. and the difficulty of dealing with that. Um, the enormous problems that China was facing domestically during this era in terms of the rise of official corruption. I mean, opium is really just a symptom of the wider problem of official corruption. And I should say also, just as a side note, the amount of opium that was being imported into China prior to the Opium War mm -hmm. wasn't actually that much. It was very little compared to what's being used in China in the late 19th century or the early 20th century. The reason why it became such a crisis that the government got directly involved um, was because, well, two reasons. One, because of the money that was being, the silver that was being spent on it was going illegally out of the country and diminishing China's silver supply, which is causing economic crisis. Um, but the other being that, it, because it was very present on the radar of the government because most of the people using it worked in government. <laughs> it was all the underlings in the government offices and corrupt officials who were dealing in opium, um, that the problem of opium wasn't generally understood as, as an enormous public health crisis, which is what it would become in the 20th century, when at which point China was you know, producing 10 times as much opium as they were importing from abroad. In, prior to the Opium War, it was still this high-end luxury good, but it was infiltrating the country through these networks of corruption. Um, and as far as how this works for the British, one, of the, I mean, one way of understanding the arc of this book is sort of, you know, China's decline and Britain's rise, yes, but how the British first began to be able to understand the problems that existed in China, mm -hmm. and how they moved from a largely illusory vision of China in the 18th century of this unimaginably unified and prosperous and perfect country that the Enlightenment philosophers all sort of worshipped at the feet of, to a country that you could fight an opium war against. So first, think how absurd the Opium War was in military terms, uh, or just how audacious it was to imagine Britain, that to, for Britain to imagine that it could send a small fleet of warships and a few thousand troops to fight the largest empire on the face of the earth. About a third of the world lived in China at this time. And imagine that anything good could come out of that. Um, so the British had had a military advantage all the way back. I mean, Lord McCartney in 1793 recognized that the Royal Navy with a couple of frigates could probably shut down China's coastal trade and re reduce Canton to famine. But, and this is the very, very important but, he said, if we did that, the emperor could just wave his hand and shut us out of the trade, and we would lose our source of tea, and where would we be then? And that's what they keep saying in Britain, that, that, the, that any time sort of, uh, the possibility of a conflict comes up, it's that like, why, I mean, just as Napoleon put it, why would you possibly want to fight a war against China? It's got 300 million people. All it will do is come right back at you and destroy you in the end. So the story on the British side is of these secretive travelers, um, missionaries, um, a guy, Hugh Hamilton Lindsay, who's a very sneaky British character, um, who, you know, they learn Chinese, they sneak themselves into the country, they start sending back these essentially propaganda reports to the British government arguing, and I mean, if you want echoes of various wars, I guess you could throw out Iraq or something like that, that essentially saying that the merchants of China all desperately want free trade with the British. And it's just their government that's holding them back. Mm -hmm. And that if Britain goes and clearly just makes war against the Qing dynasty, then the merchants of China will come over to our side. Um, these arguments, that arguing that actually the ordinary people of China are quite friendly to foreigners and they want us there. And this becomes 
perversely, the logic of the war. This is what makes the cabinet ministers think that they can send a little tiny war fleet over there and actually succeed in opening up, in opening up further trade. But very much that depends on what is happening in China. And I think there's an old vision, and it's still sometimes like, you know, the most, the most deeply nationalistic version of this in China, you know, holds that, that Britain weakened China, that Britain came and forced opium down the throats of the Chinese and weakened the country, now we'll make up for that. No, Britain did not weaken China, Britain took advantage of China's weakness in the early 19th century. They capitalized on the fissures within society and the problems that the government was already having. And following the war, they pumped, they pumped far more opium in. But at this particular time, it was really a matter of them recognizing an advantage that they had gotten, largely due to domestic reasons in China. Yeah. 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 A leading question. I introduce yourself. Doug Murray. I've been involved with the National Committee and with Yale China for many years, one way or another. And, uh, I'd love to hear you explain how you got so passionately interested in China. <laughs> <laughs> how did I? I mean, I, in the little podcast interview before this, I was saying I can't even remember how I started working on this book, um, let alone how I got interested in China in the first place. But um, no, I, um, I knew nothing about China in high school. I knew nothing about China in college. Um, senior year, I got a little pamphlet about the Yale China program, which has been going since 1904, thereabouts, um, sending a few Yale grads each year to go and teach in China. And I thought, hey, this sounds really fun. Um, and I, and, and I actually, I mean, the, the nice story about that. So they said they wound up sending me to uh, Hunan province, Changsha, the capital of Hunan, um, which is actually what, it, which was the basis of my dis my dissertation was was uh, was Hunan history and about the re reformers and revolutionaries in Hunan. Um, and then his first wonderful book, which you should also read. That's right. Not that it's wonderful, but that it is. <laughs> um, but so in any case, the, uh, the trick here was because I never thought of going to China, let alone going to China for two years, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it was how am I going to explain to my parents that I'm doing this complete 180, I was going to apply for law school, now I'm going to China. So I called home and I said, oh, there's this great program that Yale has sending teachers to China. And my dad sort of heard this and he sort of thought for a moment and he said, you know, I think Uncle Bob did that. <laughs> and it turned out that I had a great uncle who went to Changsha and was there in 1915. He was there in 1914, 1915. He went over just as World War I was breaking out. Um, he was there for Yuan Shikai's coronation, or attempted coronation. Um, and on the Yale China program? On the Yale China program at the very same site where I was. And somehow, like, word went out through the family, and I, and I was sent a batch of his letters that he had written home during his whole time there, this thick batch of letters and photographs. He had a camera and he took pictures all over Changsha of himself with his students and things like so that. So why is that your next book, right, in World War II? I, I could do him, but it's family history. You have to steer clear family history because it always it always seems so much more important to you than it does to anybody else. <laughs> um, but I would, say, I would say that reading those letters, like while having my own sort of intense cultural culture shock experience in China and learning Chinese and traveling, and then reading about his parallel experience in a very much earlier time. I think that was probably the basis of, of an interest in history and the sort of threads of continuity. 
and and then I went to work for Herbert Levin, and then eventually made my way to Yale and did graduate school. That's a wonderful story. I love that. Yeah. Hi. Hi. Good to see you. Spring me back to years of we studied history together. Yeah. Um, sorry, I love that. But actually, actually, I'm so happy. Oh, I'm Heini. I'm a staff member here at the National Academy. Uh, we did our PhD together. Yeah. And um, actually, my question, especially a last comment. I haven't read your book. I'm sorry. But did you talk about the Second Opium War? Because the comment you made at the very end just brings me back to today, especially when we were talking about this. People were saying the British was snuck into China, saying that people actually wanted to trade with us. How do you do a comparison between today's trade war? Like, the argument, actually, I'm sorry, it's going to be a line question. The argument is actually Chinese people, Chinese merchants, almost everybody in China, they actually love free trade. And by having China join WTO 15 years ago, Gradually, you know, this idea, people, even the government were open to the idea of free trade. And today, people are saying, no, China has been playing by their own rules. They just, and, you know, when I was listening to you, I was thinking, especially drawing from first opium war to the second opium war, I don't know if people here, it was uh, 1856. Yeah. And uh, actually, you know, you think about it today, it's because the justification of that war is after the 19th Treaty was signed, after the first opium war, the British believe that the China, you know, after the war, will follow the terms of the treaty. Mm -hmm. It turned out like the Chinese officials, especially the officials, never intended to follow any of those terms. <laughs> like <laughs> there were terms in the 19th Treaty saying, like from now on, the British merchants will be allowed to live in the urban areas, especially in Canton. Mm -hmm. And the governor of Canton, actually Liang Guangzong, Liu Qing, right? Yes. Like his name Qing. He just thought, oh, you know what? Those are just terms. I'll just delay and delay. Finally, this British will just go give up. <laughs> he said, I don't understand this British people. They were so persistent. They kept arguing that we want to live in the city. We want to live in the city. He never allowed them. For seven years, the British pushed, right? Mm -hmm. And also, yeah, yeah, Minchen. Minchen, yeah, the governor the general, they actually kidnapped. Yeah. They, they captured a, a Qing governor general, yeah. And he was actually secretly telling the Chinese citizens there, I mean the Chinese saying, well, do everything you can to stop the British from coming, right? And when the British went to his court to argue for their own cases, he had, again, all kinds of ways of saying, oh, you know what, I don't have time now. So if you, can you draw a comparison? I'm drawing a comparison. You've done a better comparison than I can. <laughs> I think that led to all this you know, anger and frustration that eventually led to the second opium. There's a lot of historical parallel there, the lesson. I think there is, and I think you've actually answered your question better oh. better <laughs> than I could. The, the only thing, I mean, I, I mean, just. The, Can you maybe just give Heine began, but for those in the audience who don't know, what is the basic difference between the first and yeah, the Yeah, we always throw out that term, opium wars, and, 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 and um, the first opium war is the only war that directly had opium at the center of it because the provocation was Lin Zexu confiscating a huge amount of opium from British opium traders and destroying it. Lin Zexu was the Qing, uh, was a Qing imperial commissioner who had been sent by the emperor to put an end to the opium trade at Canton. He was not, however, told to go after the foreign merchants. 
and the smart people who counseled him, like Bao Shichen and Gong Zhizhen, both warned him, do not involve the foreigners in this. Um, and really, I mean, one of the, part of the tragedy of this is that he, if he had focused on a domestic crackdown, the, the opium market would have dried up. You can see this in the writings of the opium merchants themselves, which are at the Cambridge University Library. Um, that they were afraid that, that everything was drying up and they, they would never be able to sell their opium again. Anyhow, he, of his own volition, um, decided to target the British opium dealers. And is it okay if I keep going on this a little bit about like, how, how this played out? Because this is really, I mean, this is one of the instances where individuals made a huge difference. So Lindsay Shoes' complete break with precedent in deciding to target the British opium dealers as part of China's opium problem. Because yeah, disagreeing with the emperor. It's unclear. I mean, we don't know exactly what was said. I mean, he's blamed by the emperor after this for provoking a war and sent into exile and then rehabilitated. <coughs> um, but um, what was I going to say? So he targets the British. So, so he, of his own volition, targets the foreign dealers um, in an issue that previously had largely been seen by Chinese officials as a domestic problem. Uh, it, you know, in the 1980s with the crack epidemic in the United States, if we were to blame the entire thing on Colombia, uh, that, that there's, you know, there's some complicity there, certainly. But most, most of the scholars arguing about the opium problem is, you know, why are we using opium? Why are we buying it? Why are, you know, I mean, and I, I, just as a tangent to a tangent, <laughs> Lin Zexu, the great, he's in Chinatown. And on, uh, there's a statue of him in Chinatown with a plaque that says pioneer of the war on drugs. His first advice to the emperor about the opium problem in 1833 was that if the real problem here is silver going out of the country through the illegal opium trade, then the solution should be that the Chinese should produce more opium themselves. <laughs> and then they can buy it from each other and we won't lose any silver. So that was, so Lin Zexu changed. And by the time he came to his crackdown, he was part of a very small faction um, of hardcore suppressionists. He's sometimes painted as this sort of enlightened official, as a progressive that doesn't really hold up. Um, incidentally, his, I mean, his general view is that opium, uh, that opium had to be suppressed. Um, they, everyone would, you know, users and dealers would be punished. Um, there would be a one-year grace period. This is where the enlightenment side comes from. There would be a one-year grace period. The government would provide hospitals and treatment and encouragement to help people get off of opium. Um, the part that generally isn't remembered is that at the end of that one-year grace period, everyone left in China who still smokes opium should be executed. <laughs> so uh, this is a, a very hard crackdown. But any, in any case, so Lin Zexu demanded that the British turn over all of their opium. Um, they weren't going to do that. It wasn't even in Canton. It was in ships off the coast. Um, they, they could scramble them very easily off to Manila or Singapore or other ports where they would be safe. And basically, the British merchants just yawned. They knew there wasn't really anything that Lin Zexu would do to them. They knew that Chinese officials periodically would make a lot of noise about you know, you know, executions and things like that, but it never really happened. Um, Lin Zexu threatened to execute Hokwa, um, the, the merchant from there, um, and sort of marched him around in chains threatening his execution. But um, Robert Bennett Forbes, John Murray Forbes' older brother, who was there at the time, noticed that the chain around Hokwa's neck was sort of more like a necklace. It was a <laughs> silver chain. It was sort of all for show. So the merchants themselves were going to wait and see what would happen. They weren't terribly concerned. The thing that turns this into a crisis is this British superintendent of trade named Charles Elliott, um, who has an anxiety problem and is prone to panic attacks. 
Um, also, I, I, I say Robert Bennett Forbes, he, he has one of the best accounts of this era. But, so John Murray Forbes, his older brother, um, he describes these as Elliot's mad freaks, um, that he's sort of prone to just losing it. And he lost it in the middle of this. And he was the British superintendent of trade, which meant that he was supposed to be keeping track of the British traders in Canton, but he had no power over them at all. They did whatever they did. He himself was opposed to the opium trade. He tried to sort of rein them in, but he had no power at all. But he knew that he would be held accountable if Lindsay Shu started chopping the heads off of British subjects in Canton. And in one of these mad freaks, he was certain that Lindsay Shu was about to start doing exactly that. So he was the one who decided that all the British merchants had to give up their opium to Lindsay Shu. But, you ask, if he had no power over the British merchants, how could he make them do that? Well, the way he did that was by buying it from them. And he issued a circular saying that he, that he would sign promissory notes to, and that the British merchants had to sign over their opium to him. He would sign a pledge that the British government would pay them back the full market value of their drugs. And by that means, coerce them into giving the money, to, to giving the drugs to him to hand over to Lin Zexu to be destroyed. So there's this wonderful moment there where one of the British newspapers in Canton talks about sort of, we've all been like, the, the young and beautiful Queen of England has been toasted with flowing cups on now being the largest holder of opium on record. Um, so he basically bought all of the opium of China on, on behalf of Queen Victoria. And, and the merchants were delighted to do this because, again, they thought, the mar they thought that Lin Zexu's domestic crackdown was going to succeed, and they would have no way of selling all of this glut of opium they had on their ship. So they gave it all to Elliot. He gave it to Lin Zexu, who destroyed it. And that's where the provocation for war comes. There are various excuses trotted out in Britain. Oh, it's because Lin Zexu threatened to execute British merchants. Blah, 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 blah. It all boils down to the fact that the British government was now on the hook for two million pounds worth of opium. <laughs> and it did not have the money to pay that. Um, that was a, the, the British government's annual budget was about 50 million pounds at the time. So this was a huge sum of money. Um, there was a debate in the cabinet meeting about who's going to pay for this. And they said, well, maybe the East India Company should pay for it. Um, the British government doesn't have the resources. There's no way parliament is going to approve this. And in the end, they decide the easiest thing was to make China pay for it. And that's how the war began. Um, but, oh, I, I got so far away from what you were the saying. The Second World War. Okay. The, difference between right. the, two. the Second Opium War had basically nothing to do, except that it was a continuation of that first war. So that first war, which is sort of on the provocation of the opium merchants, it doesn't legalize opium. Formally, they distance themselves from the opium trade. What it does do is it forces open five ports to British trade and various other concessions. The second opium, the, the war that's called, that's usually called the Second Opium War, is fought in order to enforce that treaty and expand on it uh, because they feel that the terms haven't been followed. And it's, I mean, in the largest sense, these are both trade wars of forcing open trade. And as Heine said, yeah, the, the, there, there's this message that the British merchants all want us to trade with them, and these officials are standing in their way, so we have to humiliate the government. And you can see the trajectory of this. So I didn't talk about the Second Opium War book in, I mean, the Second Opium War in this book, but I did in my Taiping Rebellion book, because it overlaps with the Taiping Rebellion. And, it, and the Second Opium War culminates with the, you know, the invasion of Beijing by the British and French armies, um, the destruction of the imperial palace outside of Beijing. The emperor flees into hiding and dies there the next year. 
And that is sort of both the low point of British-Chinese relations, um, but it's also sort of the ending of that line of aggression that begins with the Opium War. Because it's after that that the British realize that they've pushed the Qing government to the point of collapse and that it's now in real danger of being overthrown by the Taiping rebels. So ironically, after fighting these two opium wars against the Qing government, by 1862, they're turning around and they're going to ally themselves with the Qing government in order to help it suppress the rebellion. And as with everything else, they have these grand hopes of nothing will come of it. They think they're gonna get all kinds of preferred trade and it never happens. So you gave a, um, a, a nice description of how we in the U.S. can look back at the Opium War and come up with an interpretation of it which is maybe more useful uh, for the present day. Uh, so what would you say if you were invited into the Politburo um, to give them a suggestion about how they could portray the Opium War internally in China in a way that is more constructive than the narrative that they now employ, what would that be? I would tell her to read the book. Honestly, I, like, I mean, I, I've been wondering. I mean, so the book, it's, it's, in, it's currently being translated, and there's a Chinese press that's planning to publish this um, in China. And I've been watching with real interest these various statements coming down from the central government about the writing of history and wondering how is this book actually going to fall in there and Lord knows who is going to read it and in, in, in what way. But the side of it, uh, there, there, there are sides of this that I know would not be received favorably where it talks about sort of the creation of Chinese nationalism and how, you know, what the war became, um, where it talks about you know, Chinese complicity in the drug trade, that the British were only able to get their drugs to the coast of China. Everything from there on in was in Chinese hands. Uh, which is something that, the, that the, the nationalist narrative does not like to dwell upon. The part of the narrative that actually might suit that is what I have been talking about, that the Chinese government, I mean, part of this sort of the attack on historical nihilism that comes up all the time, um, in terms of World War II, that has manifested as trying to celebrate the stories of say, Americans like in the Dixie Mission or military observers who were favorable towards the communists. The ones who did not make the mistake of supporting Chiang Kai-shek, the ones who were not responsible for you know, the, the, you know, the terrible relations in the Korean War, et cetera, et cetera. In the case of the Opium War, if the impulse of whoever happens to be reading this in the Politburo, I should I'd be so lucky, if the impulse is not to try to drum up antagonism with the West, but to show China's importance in international trade and how central it has been, then I think they too would want to celebrate, point to the British at the time who tried to keep this war from happening and point that the British at the time knew how unjust this war was. And it is terrible that it happened, but it does not define all of them. And we should hold on to the memory of the Opium War and what it represents, but we should also remember that there are friendly foreigners and there have been all along who see the value of Chinese trade and how it benefits both parties. I think actually that it could sneak under the radar under that interpretation. There are other interpretations of this book where it would not. So I'd actually think you know, it's anyone's best guess what they decide to see in it, if anyone actually reads it. Yeah. Catherine? Yeah. Um, I think 
Ken Wasserman, I'm an attorney. Uh, can you go into greater detail on what was the moral justification of the left in order to begin and continue the opium war? Okay, so the champ the proponents of the war. It, they narrowed it down entirely to the insult, to the insecurity of honorable British merchants at Canton whose trade had been shut down and who had been threatened with execution. That was seen as an atrocity that had to be redeemed by a limited and focused war, the sole purpose of which was to get an apology from the Qing government. In, that, in those three nights of debate in Parliament, nobody talked about opening ports. Nobody talked about expanding trade. Those were not morally tenable as a reason for war. The pure and simple and direct reason for this was atrocities had been committed against British merchants, including those who had nothing to do with the opium trade. And for the safety of our honorable commerce in China, we must have a treaty with the Chinese government that protects our subjects from this kind of treatment in the future. <coughs> that was the justification for the limited extraterritoriality that, the, that British subjects should only be subject to a consular court of law rather than Qing, government, Qing law. Ironically, the Qing government never prosecuted foreigners unless they killed somebody. Of everything short of capital crimes, they would, you know, at worst they would banish them, send them on their way. Um, and there's actually Hokwa, actually, it tells Charles Eliot that, that the Chinese government actually would like it, would like nothing better than for the British to set up consular courts in order to govern their own people while they're doing their business at Canton, the same way that the Portuguese governed themselves in Macau. Um, so it was that very tightly limited, focused reason which was a justification for the war. And everything beyond that, they denied, denied, denied. Um, and it's amazing that it managed to sneak through. But the fear of, I mean, the, the fact was that, you know, the Whigs brought along most of their own party, even though they were the moral ones. The conservatives who were opposed to them were quite vulnerable to charges of being soft on national honor. Um, and so some of them were pulled over because they did not want to be seen as trying to trying to stop a war whose real purpose was to try to defend Britain's honor in the Far East. Even though that honor was built on a morally reprehensible trait. And I know not yeah. all of them, but yeah. at least no. part of them. What, what's the proportion of people who were trading and weren't in those Most ways? of them were involved in the opium trade in one way or another. Um, I should say, I mean, in terms of the lobbying that went into this war, though, the opium lobby was very small. It was just a handful of merchant houses. They were owed a lot of money, but there's just a handful of them. The people were lobbying back to the British? Yeah, lobbying the British government, pay us back for these opium, they called it opium. Yeah, actually, like Charles Eliot's promissory notes became a currency in India. They were called opium script. And you were basically betting on whether it was going to be paid off. And I mean, they expected to be paid, and they had every right to be paid. Um, so there was lobbying from the, from the opium merchants, lobbying the British government, pay us now. You owe us this money. Your superintendent signs this in good faith. Um, the much, much larger and more powerful lobbying, however, came from the manufacturing districts, um, where, um, side note here, 
when Linz's shoe shut down the trade at Canton, he put everyone under lock and key, pulled out all the servants, um, kept, uh, kept them there. Ultimately, for six weeks, the foreigners were under lock and key in Canton. This also goes into the, the threats against honorable British merchants, that they've been, they've been incarcerated and threatened with execution in China. Um, this, so it, it took six weeks for all of the opium to be recalled from all of the far-flung places where it had been sent and finally get it all delivered to Lin Zixu. Actually, they didn't have enough. They promised more than they had. They had to buy more opium to give to him. Um, but the, uh, the fact that the legitimate trade was shut down for six weeks, and during the course of that six weeks, nobody knew when it was going to end, meant that there was very loud lobbying from the merchant organizations from Manchester, from Leeds, from Bristol, from all of these cities that had been shipping cotton goods to China and various other manufactured goods. Um, and that throws a lot of this into perspective, incidentally. There's a petition in the, in the, in the, in the British archives um, from just from the Merchant Association of Manchester, so one city, um, arguing to, to, to Foreign Minister Palmerston um, that they were on track to ship 850,000 pounds worth of cotton goods to China that year, all of which appears to be unsellable because their ships are being held outside Canton unable to trade. That is nearly half the value of all of the opium that was seized. And that's one city's manufacturers. That opium takes on this outsized part. It was a lot of money at stake with opium, but there were a lot of other goods that were being shipped to China as well. And it's the voices of those legitimate merchants, the, 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 the cotton textile weavers and whatnot, that those are what really push the government to act, rather than waiting to see how things play out. Go ahead. Hi, my name is Jonathan Fanella. I'm from the NYU US Asia Law Institute. We're actually working on a project right now dealing with the um, era of national humiliation in China. And I was wondering, how did the Chinese uh, back then um, view the um, era of national humiliation from a, a legal pers perspective, or just in general, compared to now, um, especially dealing with um, with the Shanghai Mixed Court? Oh, that's outside of my uh, that's outside of my expertise. Yeah, that's a much later that that's a much later era of this. For this particular media era, this isn't really a national humiliation. It's not really a national anything. As I said, it's not seen as a major war even. Um, yeah, not that many battles were fought. It's humiliating on the ground, and it's, you know, it's this huge loss of stature for the government for being unable to, to pull off this war. But that the, the, like the formal rhetoric of national humiliation, as I understand it, really begins in the 1920s and 30s, um, and then really reaches a peak with Chiang Kai-shek. Um, and it's, it, that at the time, this wasn't seen as the, as the opening of an era of humiliation. It was seen as a very avoidable war. And I should also add here that there's this sort of fiction about the Opium War, that this was sort of the moment when the Chinese were shocked into awareness of the power of the British, and they shocked into the awareness of the Western military might. That is, that is a complete crock as well. That <laughs> officials who had never served near the coast, officials from the north were all about throw out all the British and shut down their trade, and who are they from their tiny island and whatnot. And certainly the emperor subscribed to that because that's what he heard. But officials on the coast who had actually dealt with foreigners knew full well how powerful these ships were. And they wrote accounts describing how thick their hulls were and how accurate their cannons were. And generally, the voices of caution. Um, there's a Chinese scholar, Mao Haijian, who wrote like sort of the, the, one of the one of the biggest books on the Opium War in the past 20 or, year, 20 or so years, 
Um, and one of the things that he points out is that the sort of the angry voices of suppress the foreigners and stamp them out come from the north. They come from inland, where the voices of you know, in a, in a negative connotation, appeasement, more realistic accommodation, come from along the coast and those who have actual experience of the trade. Um, and it's also the coastal officials who know how valuable the British trade is, the British and American trade. There's this, I mean, another fiction of this era is that the Chinese were all disdainful of foreign things. And that's, that's also complete bull. Um, there was that line of Qianlong's edict to the King of England, we have no value, we don't value, like he was just posturing. I mean, he himself had a huge collection of clocks and wrote poems about glass and things like that. Um, that. And he knew full well the huge amount of revenue that was coming into the country, especially silver, which China needed. Up until the 1820s, China was the largest net importer of silver in the world. And through a huge population boom in the 18th century, that helped to keep the economy stable. And it helped the peasant currency, which was copper currency, helped it to be more valuable. And the crisis that comes from the silver drain in the, in the late 1820s and the 1830s, which precedes this war, is that as silver floods out of the country, silver becomes more valuable, so copper becomes worth less and less and less. And it meant that effectively, for ordinary peasants, their taxes, which were calculated in silver, became more and more expensive. So for a peasant who had nothing to do with the opium trade in coastal China, um, who never smoked opium, who never saw it, well, they probably saw it, but I mean, who had nothing at all to do with it, by, by the time of the opium war broke out, their taxes had gone up 70 or 80% for reasons nobody really fully understood. And the, and the really intense desire of the government to act was, it was above all to stop this silver drain and try to restore rationality to the economy. All right, one last short question. Uh, my name is Jun and I'm a researcher from uh, US-China Atlantic Institute for International Business. Um, and your last comment about the silver drain really interests me. Do you have uh, specific statistics about um, how much um, silver were actually lost, uh, lost uh, because of the opium trade? It's a, there's a huge debate over whether the opium trade really was yeah. responsible for yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and there, and it's, it certainly had some to do with it because the East India Company was shipping silver back to England and boiling it down for bullion. Mm -hmm. um, but this was, uh, but this coincided with a global slump in silver output. I mean, the, I mean Richard von Glan is really eloquent on this. The um, uh, uh, Man Hong Lin, um, her book China Upside Down, is all about this this silver question. Mm -hmm. um, and her view is that is that this wasn't really the reason for the crisis. Um, and yeah. so, I mean, but di different scholars have disagreed very strongly about this. If you email me, I can send you some articles to, to look oh, at on okay. this. Um, but three things that, uh, that undoubtedly at least coalesced together. Um, one, the world's largest source of silver in the early 19th century was from mines in Peru and Mexico. Yeah. And due to national liberation revolutions, those mines were shut down which led to a global slump in silver output. Um, silver became more valuable everywhere. It became more scarce. Um, second, the silver that was being shipped out of China was, uh, was, was Chinese, I don't even know how to pronounce this English word, Siki or Saisi, they call it. Um, but it's the pure Chinese silver, which is, which is um, sort of molded into little ingots, and, and it's traded by weight, um, the tail in English, T-A-E-L. Mm -hmm. 
So in Chinese foreign trade, the only legal silver that could be used was Spanish dollars because those had originated from abroad. And those circulated widely in China. They were actually in some places preferred over Chinese silver. Chinese silver was, was illegal to export from the country. But that's what went out to the opium dealers along the coast because they weren't subject to any kind of laws. So there was undoubtedly, a, there was a flow of silver going out there um, which then could not be used to buy tea at Canton because it was Chinese silver. It was not silver dollars. And so the Hong merchants could not take it as payment. So there's nothing you do with it than ship it back to England, melt it down into bullion, and try to do something with that. Um, and then as the global slump of silver and whatever is lost to opium starts to affect China, then wealthy people begin hoarding silver because the value is going up, which takes even more out of circulation. And there, there are other factors as well. But the, I mean, the, the, the documentation that the Chinese government had was what is the exchange rate in different areas? That's what they had to go by. They had no idea how much silver was coming or going anywhere. They, had, they, had, they didn't have that kind of control over the economy. But they could find out how, you know, what's the exchange rate in Zhejiang province for, for you know, copper coins to silver. In, in happy times, it's 1,000 copper coins to one ounce of silver, to a tail of silver. In even happier times, it's 900 to one. Um, by the late Daogong, by the Daogong era, it's up, getting up close to 2,000 to one. Um, and then, uh, oh, and then also corruption. Besides people taking silver out of circulation, when those peasants pay their taxes, they have to pay the magistrate a, a, a commission to convert their copper currency into inflated silver, and he charges a commission on top of that. So, so the, the real worry, so peasants were being charged you know, twice as much for the taxes, for a tax burden that used to be 1,000 copper coins, now they have to cough up 2,000. And so there are tax protests and riots, and this is, this is what sparked action. Unfortunately, I know there are some more questions. I have a lot, but we passed the witching hour. Um, I want to say that just in addition to the beautiful word portraits that Steve paints in this book, there are a lot of very lovely pictures of the time. Lots of them, if you like, big tall ship masts and riggers and things. There's wonderful um, sea type pictures, but, and then also individual portraits of people, some of the people he describes. So I urge you all to just go outside and buy this book, bring it here, Steve would be happy to, happy to sign it. Um, I just, it's on your um, information about him, but I didn't mention in the beginning that Steve is part of a program that we run here at the National Committee called our Public Intellectuals Program. And it has two main purposes. One is to get scholars of today to be, to think a little more holistically like scholars of my generation um, who couldn't go into China and research things very deeply, uh, so they had to be generalists, to get them to think beyond their own discipline. And the other is to get them to be public intellectuals in a broad sense, but the whole idea is to get the knowledge that, or to encourage them and to give them some of the skills to get the knowledge that they have out beyond the ivory tower and into the public domain. And so books like this that Steve has written, both this one and his two former books, which are sort of crossover books that appeal to the, the public, not just the intellectuals sitting at universities, are just the kind of things that we hope our public intellectuals will do. And so 
I'm always delighted when we can prove that we selected people wisely. And so I'm very <laughs> proud that uh, you were in the second cohort of our public intellectuals. So please, please join me in thanking Steve. For